Welcome to episode 2013 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs, and I'm joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? Doing great. How are you? Well, my mentions are once again full of pooping. <laughs> because of Pete Alonso. Yeah, because of Pete Alonso. And I, I had said, like, it's so nice to have these tender kisses be the source of so many mentions as opposed to my usual beat where people are pooping. Mm-hmm. And then Pete Alonso had to tell a story. And then everyone was like, hey, here's a pooping guy for you. Yeah. You know? And I love when people are like, in case you haven't seen it. And I'm like, I don't know if you understand how well known for this particular beat I have become. <laughs> but uh, the odds yeah. are good I have seen it. You only wrote one thing about this, right? I mean, you you wrote the Archie Bradley thing, and then we've we've talked about it. I wrote about what can potentially be a precursor to pooping, which was the farting and the right. forceful um, inspired uh, breaking, by the breaking yes, Lind. Yes, Adam the Lind. the Adam Lind example that Jeff and I talked about on the podcast yeah, with the thank with you for the that. <laughs> right yeah. just with the the rosin the poof yeah. That it, it seemed to probably be a, a rosin poof. It was a rosin poof. I don't think yes. he farted forcefully enough to no. expel um, mm-hmm. rosin from his pants. But I, I think the combination of those two articles has made this maybe. But yeah, the, the Archie Bradley one was definitely the most salient example, you know. Because there was a sleuthing required that time. Yeah, That's it did the have thing. to do a little Yeah, sleuthing. Pete Alonso didn't leave anything to the imagination, no. really, in terms of when this happened. I mean, he gave enough details, the, the little clip from the Foul Territory interview. The host, one of the hosts, said which game it was. So there's no research to do yeah. here as far as pinpointing the game or the moment like we did with Kike Hernandez on the podcast when he came out and said that he did it but didn't specify exactly when it happened. So there's no homework to do this time. It's just a funny story that reminds us that everybody poops, as the book says, and that includes major leaguers and that includes major leaguers during baseball games yeah. sometimes. So he had to go and he mistimed it <laughs> and he realized that he really had to go and he was was due up, yeah. and so he decided to swing at the first pitch because he had to. He it had was an to. emergency, and he hit a home run because right. he hits a lot of home runs, <laughs> and he made haste back to the dugout and took care of business. I'm fascinated by the fact that, like, really, this is a story about an absence of pooping, you know, until the very end. <laughs> yeah. But it, it's not like Archie Bradley, where there was, like, a little bit of dew, maybe, in his... <laughs> Pants. Um, That's not what happened here, as far as as we know. So, anyway, yeah, I I saw it, friends. Yes, don't worry. I heard. And (laughs) the last time... It's been brought to Meg's attention. Yeah, it's been... uh, It got escalated up to me, don't you worry. (laughs) That made its way up the chain. The last time we talked about um, a player revealing that he had maybe actually pooped himself a little bit, Mm -hmm. we got a very... A forceful email from a listener who said he hated every moment of us talking about it. It was the worst thing he had ever heard on the podcast. And so to that listener, I want to say, I am sorry. Um, but hopefully the, the, you felt like you had enough of a, uh, a warning up top to, mm-hmm. to distance yourself from this right. segment. We'll be sure again, there's a time. 
there was no mishap here. <laughs> Nothing actually went awry. It was a close call, right. but it's a cautionary right. tale, not just for baseball players and for people in general, but also for writers because things can become your beat with just one or two times tackling that topic. So you have to be careful. You just become the person who covers that thing. Yeah. It's, it's good to specialize. Like you do sometimes hear that advice. I mean, I've become yeah. more of a, a generalist in my career, but yes. sometimes you will hear people say, yeah, you should specialize. You yeah. should find a niche. You should be niche. the expert in yeah, that thing. In one thing, yeah. And you have done that. <laughs> you didn't yeah. intend to do it exactly didn't in this area. But, yeah, yeah, I didn't. It wasn't <laughs> my intent. I, you know, when the bird died on the field, when Will Brennan killed that bird, yeah. I messaged Bauman about it. And I was like, how is it that you get like the bird deaths? And I got stuck with poop. And he was like, which of us is really losing here? Like, these are both <laughs> terrible things. So mm-hmm. what I really need in my life is for Jordan Alvarez to hit a home run and go kiss somebody. So that's, that's the only way to wash clean the slate that is my <laughs> right. mentions. Anyway, mm-hmm. yeah. here it we are. It reminds me of uh, in college, my friends and I, I'm sure probably everyone's friends, we would spot people on, on campus now and then who would do something, say something, do something that, that stuck out to us for some reason, and we didn't know them, and we never really saw them again, and they they weren't fully 3D people to us. They were just people that we encountered in the background of our lives, right. and whatever that one salient thing that they did that happened to stick out to us was, they would be known to us by that for right. the like, rest oh, of- he's a poop guy. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> it's like, oh, there's that guy who did or said that thing that <laughs> one time, yeah. right? Because uh, it's just like a, a character, like a background character yeah. in your life. Now, you're a background character in their life. You uh-huh. know, they're the protagonist in their right. life. You, you might be a, a background character to them, but- to us, it, it's just like, oh, yeah, there's that guy who did that thing that one time. And I guess that has happened to, to you with the, the poop articles with baseball. But I hope and think that you're known for much more than that. <laughs> so, yeah. All right. So we've got a few things to talk about today, and then we will have a stat blast and a pass blast. So I guess we should relate some good news about pitchers returning to action because it seems like so often we're lamenting the loss of pitchers and pitchers hurting themselves that we should note when pitchers come back, especially if it's a pitcher who's been gone for some serious reason. And we are recording on Monday afternoon and we are happy to report. I mean, we're not breaking this news. We're not reporting it. We're relaying the news that Liam Hendricks is back with the White Sox. He is cancer-free and he is back in baseball. And Jeff Passan had a nice piece about him and about the whole journey that he's gone through over the past year or more and just the past five months or so of actual treatment for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which I had not realized until I read the piece was stage four non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is more treatable and, and survivable for that particular kind of cancer than other kinds when you hear stage four. But still, that's a scary, serious thing. And he probably would have been back sooner if it had been up to him. But he is healthy and he is raring to go. And the White Sox will be thrilled to have him. They could certainly use him on the field as well. 
but and in the clubhouse because everyone loves Liam Hendricks. Yeah. So you're going to get a boost from having Liam Hendricks around regardless of the circumstances. But also, hey, Liam Hendricks is back. So there's your good news about baseball for today. Yeah, it's just like a, a lovely bit of a lift, you know, because mm-hmm. it's good. It's, it's more than good news about baseball, right? It's like good yeah. news about you know, people. It's a people. Mm-hmm. It's people news. So yeah, yeah I'm, it's such a relief, and um, I hope that things kind of go well for him as he comes back, and that he remains healthy and cancer-free for many, many years to come. And another return on Monday. Michael Soroka is back, who obviously was missing from action for a lot longer than Hendricks, not for a life-threatening reason, but for a career-threatening reason or reasons. And on Monday, this will have happened by the time people are listening to this, but Soroka is back and he's actually going to be facing Paul Blackburn, who's also back and is making his season debut for the Oakland A's. So, hey, it's okay now, A's fans. Paul Blackburn, 2022 All-Star, is back. I mean... Get get hurt to have uh, Paul Blackburn back. I don't think that's quite gonna gonna do it for them. But you know, every win or loss avoidance matters for the Oakland A's these days. But the headline is that Soroka has returned, and yes. he has not pitched in the majors since 2020. Yeah, it has been a really long time really since long we've time. seen. Soroka in the majors. Of course, he was an all-star in 2019. He was sixth place in the Cy Young race. He was the rookie of the year, runner-up. And then even 2020, he was missing for most of that shortened season. So it has been years and years and injuries after injury since he returned. So Atlanta, not quite as in need of reinforcements and, and pitching as the White Sox are, although certainly the Braves have been shorthanded when it comes to pitching and have lost their fair share pitchers too. But nice to see Soroka return as well. Not a moment too soon given some of their other losses. Right, but yeah. um yeah, it's really they should they should work on the technology to uh, protect better protect elbows or maybe just clown Spencer Strider. Yeah, that would help too. One or the other, you know. But then do you have to wait, you know, for the clone to... Well, you can do the the Star Wars accelerated aging thing, but there are all kinds of ethical issues with that as well. yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's really a problem. (laughs) Remember, do you remember being a kid and being like really worried about Dolly the sheep? Oh, yeah, Yeah. right. (laughs) Uh, Funny. Mm. So, Soroka, successive Achilles tears, right? Which Terrible. Just like reading about his injuries, it just yeah. it sounded not only just damaging to his career, but like painful yeah. and especially demoralizing. Yeah, and man. There were other injuries along the way, too. So, yeah, I'm just seeing that that those three guys are back, especially Hendrix and, and also yeah. to a lesser extent Soroka. That was a nice boost because, you know, I went to MLB Trade Rumors and the first headline I saw was Lance McCullers no longer throwing off yeah. a mound. I know. I, I was like, oh, <laughs> yeah, it's never I, good. Yeah. I was wondering, well, like, is he throwing off something else I now? Where, so. where is he throwing? I think, no, I, I think he, got shut he, down again, right? he had moved back to throwing off flat ground, but I don't know if he's throwing at all now. Yeah, but yeah, that Astros rotation also a fair share of uh, injuries there too, and not a ton of depth that they built in. Anyway, we gotta take our opportunities to be pleased about pitcher health. Yeah, <laughs> so that's what we're doing this time. We don't want to be all doom and gloom. Sometimes pitchers come back too. Sometimes they come back. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, and not the only notable return from injury you know who else is back who speaking of like injuries that just sound really painful royce lewis got activated oh, that's right. off the injured list mm-hmm. um 
So he's he's back in action. Max Kepler too. But I, are we at the point where we're like, hey, how good a baseball player is Max Kepler? But anyway, um, Royce Lewis is back, and he had uh, just like the the knees of you know. Yeah, octogenarian, but mm-hmm. it seems like he's gonna he's gonna be back and hopefully yeah. playing well for for the Twins. So the Minnesota Twins, with as we speak, a one game lead over the Detroit Tigers in the AL Central. Weird. <laughs> the, the, the Twins are one game over five hundred and also Yikes. one game in first place that Yikes. division. I, I don't want to harp on it too much, but <laughs> gosh, that division—it's so bad. <laughs> It's, it's really so bad. Really so bad. And, you know, not to be um, totally outdone, like, the NL Central is not much better. So. No, no, it's not. Yeah, and I was actually just looking at the standings as a whole, mm-hmm. and there's not a single division where the division leader's lead is as many as five games. The, right. the max, as we speak, is four and a half. In the East and NL East, yeah. Yeah, I and uh, also the AL East. I think the Rays are up four and a half currently. Four. Yeah. So, oh, that's right. Yeah. Was there a game that I missed? Maybe. So, I don't know know if that's historically significant. I have not uh, stat blasted that to see how common it is. Yes, the the standings I had to refresh and look at that. The the lead is now (laughs) half game smaller in the AL East. But I I don't know if this is that anomalous for there not to have been big leads built up. We're only a couple months into the season, but. No one is running away with things because, as we noted, the Rays, uh, who have by far the best record in baseball still, they have not run away with things because all the teams in that division are good. And the Orioles have been great too lately, and the Yankees have been good, and so there's not that much of a gap there. So in the Central, now that Twins lead has expanded to a game and a half since I last refreshed. So <gasps> oh my that's God, it's like there's much baseball more, happening all uh, around us. <laughs> yeah. So comfortable game and a half lead now. Still only one in the last column. Anyway, you've got a game and a half lead in the Central. You've got a two and a half game lead in the AL West. You have a game and a half lead in the NL Central. You have a game and a half lead in the NL West. So everything's kind of close now, which is good, I think. Now, there's obviously a difference between having a close race where every team you know, I was going to say every team is trash. That that sounds harsh. Wow. <laughs> we, we did just uh, dump on the AL Central, but I, I won't go that far. I will say every team is mediocre. <laughs> is sure. that kinder and maybe more accurate? So every team is mediocre in that division. So that's a little less exciting than in a division where you have maybe a, a little less parity overall, but the, the top two or the top three are close and they're actually good teams, right? Like how enhanced is a pennant race, if you can even call it a, a pennant race when we're still in May as we speak, but how much more exciting is a pennant race in a good division or between good teams at a pennant race in a mediocre division or between bad teams given the same margin, the same separation? Um, 50%. I don't don't have like a meaningfully more, a lot, a bushel, a peck, um, Mm -hmm. you know, several Altuves and a smaller number of judges, like, you know, (laughs) a a lot. It's a lot. It's it's definitely a lot. Yeah. Because it just, it feels like a matter of uh, who will fail less, right? When it's uh, an AL Central, it's just no one's seizing 
the division. No one's carpeing the division. It's just everyone is slogging along and some are slogging a little bit better than others, but that's basically it. It just it it doesn't feel like anyone is winning. It just right. feels like different degrees of losing. Right. I mean, literally the twins are the only non losing team in the in AL the, Central and yeah. barely. So <laughs> Right. So that's and there are only two teams at or above five hundred in the NL Central and it, you know, the the Pirates are at 500 and the Brewers are three games up. So it's like, this is not very... And mm-hmm. and sometimes you look at it and you think to yourself, wow, the Pirates are playing 500 ball. And that does suggest like a, a step forward, right? Mm-hmm. That's good. Like they're plucky. They're frisky. They're, you know, they're not quite where the Diamondbacks are, but like they're... They can give you a problem if if they put their minds to it, um, mm-hmm. and that's good. But you want that team to be like in third or fourth place in a, mm-hmm. a good division race, right? Like you want them to be ascendant, and then the next year take a step forward and be like at the top with a little bit of room to spare. But yeah, it's um, man, it's so, there's some bleak there's some bleak baseball being played this year, Ben. Like there's a lot of mm-hmm. really good baseball being played, and that's yeah. very exciting and. Pirates, D-backs, a number of teams sort of taking a step forward, Orioles, right? And so that's really thrilling, but it's sure being weighed down at least slightly by, like, not just the the A's of the world, but just a Mm -hmm. lot of mediocre muck. There's a lot of muck out there. Yeah. Well, there aren't that many elite teams this season. You you have the Rays, who are still on pace for— 112 or so wins, right? right? But have Lost again uh, today. Yeah. And so uh, if you draw some arbitrary starting point and end point and, and just skip all the games they won at the very start of the season, then they're not quite on that same sort of pace. And one of my semi bold predictions in the podcast we did before the season started, <laughs> felt I had to qualify the boldness. But right. did, I, did I make you feel bad last time, Ben? I didn't mean to make you feel bad. Yeah. But I, I predicted that no team would win more than 97 games. Right. Obviously, the Rays are on pace to win many more than that still. But if you look at the projections, I think, yes, this is updated for the Rays' most recent loss. The the Rays are projected to win 96 games, according to the Fangraphs depth charts. And the Braves are also projected to win 96. And that's it. They're the top. So currently, no one is actually projected to win more than 97 or even 97. Now, that's assuming that the Rays are a rest-of-season 539 winning percentage team, according to the projections and factoring in the strength of schedule and everything. And as we've discussed, the Rays do seem a little more vulnerable than you would think, given their record just because of the competition, but also because of all the injuries and all the players who are perhaps uh, playing over their their previous levels in ways that may or may not be fully sustainable. So if you believe the numbers, then we're on track for my prediction to come true, at least certain numbers, not the on-pace numbers, but the projecting numbers, which uh, even at this point in the season, the projections, uh, the preseason projections, I think, still more predictive than the season-to-date record, and certainly the updated rest-of-season projections are always a good gauge. So, if two teams are on pace for 96 and there are a few other that are on pace for 90 plus, then there's still a very good chance that the Rays or someone else will end up over 97. But 
currently, at least the projections would say that that is uh, not likely to happen for any one particular team, which is unusual given recent years where we've had so much stratification and there's been big separations between the best teams and the worst teams. Now you have the A's this year, so there's still there's still going to be a big separation. One ninety-nine run differential, Ben. Yes. But they I, have Paul Blackburn back. But I, but I sure okay yeah. yes I and look <laughs> far be it for me to discount the healing powers <laughs> of Paul Blackburn. I'm happy for him that he is back. But 199. Yeah no I mean they're they're <sighs> playing at a Cleveland Spiders 1899 it's pace. So unfathomable. Just because of that season that they're having. The gap between the best and the worst performing sure. teams will still be sizable, but right, right. the top end right. is lower than it's been. And I think that's reflected right. in the fact that no team has opened up a huge division lead because no team seems unstoppable or seems right. like a juggernaut. And the teams that have seemed like that have maybe taken a step back or other teams have taken a step forward. And I think on the whole, that's probably good, right? I, I think that's good. I, I think it can be compelling when you have some super teams too. And, and yeah. you have just the Dodgers are incredible and the Astros are incredible. Like when there are certain teams you can point to and say, wow, that's a great baseball team right there, as opposed to that's a good team. That's a contending team, but it has some holes. It has some flaws. But on the whole, it's probably for the best. It, it leads to fewer non-competitive games or non-meaningful games over the course of a season, obviously. And and Rob Arthur has documented that at Baseball Prospectus, that in recent years, there have just been more games that just didn't matter as much in a playoff odd sense, playoff import, or were just more lopsided in terms of the expected victor. So if there is a great evening out, that would be kind of a correction to where we've been for the past several seasons. I think that if everyone is pretty good and clustered tight, then yes. You know, I still think that there are systemic incentives that exist that that might push us to a future that looks a lot like the centrals. Mm -hmm. But we have bucked that trajectory this year, or at least we've bucked it enough. That's a, I think buck is an underutilized verb. Royce Lewis Hummer. How about that? Oh, all right. Yeah, welcome back. <laughs> mm-hmm. Tor- two torn ACLs? No, yeah. they're not going to stop him. I mean, they yeah. did for a while, which is fine because, <laughs> did. ouch. Yeah, when you <sighs> have the same injury, it's uh, the same it's as Soroka so with the, the multiple Achilles or, or pitchers with the multiple TJs. It's just, yeah. man, it just, it, yes, you know what you're getting into, but that can be good in some ways and bad in other ways. Yeah, It's got to be demoralizing, and it also makes you feel like, Especially if it's something where, at least with the the TJ, it's like you're getting a new fresh ligament in there every time. I mean, I guess you're you're doing some similar repairs in other parts of the body. But when you're repeatedly injuring the same part, then you have to wonder, is that going to affect the function there? Or is that going to affect you psychologically, just your level of confidence in that body part? Or is there some structural weakness there where that will keep recurring? So. I don't know whether it's it's better or worse for your long-term prognosis to injure the same body part repeatedly versus injuring different body parts, <laughs> like assuming that they're not just uh, accidents and sort of freak injuries, right. but like, you know, would it be better to 
pull your hamstring over and over again? Or would it be better to pull your hamstring once and your calf once and your quad once? It'd be better not to pull any of them, obviously. But I I wonder whether it it bodes better for you if you spread it around or if it's concentrated in a single spot, which might suggest that you can't conquer that vulnerability. But then again, if you could, maybe that's your only problem. Right. Yeah. I think it would really, this is such a cheap answer, but it would depend, I think. And I think it depends too on the position that you're being asked to play, right? If you are, you know, a shortstop, like, or, you know, you're you're trying to be a, a fast guy, you know, mm-hmm. you're trying to be a, a quick boy and you have repeated lower leg or knee stuff, like at a certain point, you're going to be like, I'm going to be slower probably, maybe. Like, am I going to be able to return to the level of quickness? Is the step going to be good? And Lewis's, his positional future is is clouded by the Correa of it all. Although he's Mm -hmm. hurt now too, so I don't know, man. But I, I think it would really depend. I think that neither helps you avoid being thought of as injury prone, which is probably its own problem. But yeah, if you're just doing... I don't know if you have the same thing over and over. Plus, you just have to having to do that rehab again and again. Mm-hmm. Like ACLs, Achilles, like anything where you you are like, I could hear it snap. It's like, oh, God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so mm-hmm. that's uh, that's what I have to say about that, Ben. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So I think that I wouldn't want every team to be 81 and 81. I mean, that would be so weird if it happened that that actually would be fun one time. But I wouldn't want every team to just be indistinguishable from all the others. But I also don't think it's the best when the gaps have been as big as they have in some recent years. So I, I think this is a step in the right direction. It does make me think that we will have a greater chance of lamenting the lack of tiebreakers now, game 163s, games 163. If we have uh, closer races and greater odds of of ties or or multi-way ties, then we might lament the loss of tiebreakers even more than we have just kind of conceptually, if if it becomes something that uh, changes things in practice. But on the whole, I'm happy that the standings have largely leveled out, I, I guess, especially in the National League, where right. there's just uh, not a lot of, you know, you don't have your Rays and your A's in the right. National League. So no. everyone really is tightly clustered. Well, and I think you're right that, like, it's fun. It can be fun to have super team. But when, like, when super teams are accompanied by, like, really, really bad teams, then mm-hmm. don't you kind of look sideways at the super teams a little bit? And it's like, how super are you? You really super? Right. You know, you super yeah. duper? Or are you good and taking advantage of a competitive environment that is kind of full of muck. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes, I think that's that's an important point. So I, I do think that there are some teams that are not depressing in, in the ways that they have been in recent years. Like I was a guest on a Reds radio pregame show recently, Oh, even though uh, we have a, a bit here, a running bit going back Don't to the beginning of the podcast of, of not talking about the Reds. Yeah. I was asked to talk about the Reds. It's like that song <laughs> in that Pixar movie, you know? <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. We'll talk about the Reds. Yeah, I don't. I'm and, not, I haven't seen it, and so I don't know if that joke works, you know. But I don't. I don't need feedback on it. I'll just let let it fly on its own. It's it's spending for itself now. So not the first time I've been on that Reds pregame show, but I think probably 
the most optimistic I was able to be on the Reds pregame show because, you know, I was talking about uh, prospects arriving and things looking up. All the many infielders. So many. They've had a a shortage for years, and now they have too many. It's like when we call up Ellie De La Cruz, where is he going to play? And how are we going to sort out this shortstop situation? And where is Jonathan India going to play? And these are the proverbial good problems to have. These are not problems that the Reds have had recently. So you look at just all of their infield prospects, their their surfeit of shortstops, and how great a change that represents from recent events. And then you look at the top of the rotation and the young guys there. And again, the big question is, are they going to spend? And is ownership going to support that team? But they turned around the farm system to the point that, yeah, that team, it's not bad to watch right now. It might get even more watchable if De La Cruz and others show up soon. If Joey Votto returns at some point, uh, that would be nice from a, a sentimental perspective, although they might actually have so many players that it's like, can we afford to play Joey right. Votto and, and block the young guys, which right. uh, wouldn't have been such a problem recently. So that's just one example of a team that was either depressing to talk about or just so unremarkable that we ended up not talking about them very much. And and I mentioned our running podcast bit on that pregame show. And I was like, look, I don't know if the Reds are going to be a very good team as soon as even next season, let's say, but they are a team that we will have to talk about and we will want to talk about. (laughs) And there will be reasons to talk about them other than their owner saying something at a luncheon every now and then. So that's that's encouraging. Yes, right. I mean, so, I think he has a stick in the team too, but it's just an yes. important, you know, for, I, I haven't seen it, but I'm, I'm given to understand that it's an important distinction for all the succession heads out there, you know, that's mm-hmm. on. Yes, <sighs> I was uh, up all night writing about succession, Were you? if you couldn't tell, but there are teams and even, even like the Nationals were expected to be terrible they haven't been that terrible. Like, uh, they've been bad, but like I mean, run of the mill. Yeah, bad. they're like, they're 20, as we're recording, they're 23 and 30. So, yeah, you know, it's, it's bad. But it's not the man. Every every kind of blah team in baseball is probably sending fruit baskets to the A's. Yeah, the existence of the A's is yeah. just, well, we're not the A's. We're not right? the A's. Like, even the Rockies aren't the A's. Even no. the Colorado Rockies, not mm-hmm. the A's. Not even, even close. Even the Royals are not the A's, although the, Rays are, uh, the Royals are disconcerting. They're close, flirting but. <laughs> with being the A's in a way that yes. is really should make everyone uncomfortable. Yes, although not with, with the same degree of intention, I think. No. Right? And, I mean, you know, with a stadium deal secured, right? Yeah. The, well, How about they're, that? they're working on that, I guess, at least. But the, the Royals were, there were reasons to be kind of excited about the Royals, and yeah. those reasons have not paid off thus far. But, you know, there's hope you could look forward and, and see something there. Or even the Cubs, who have the same record as the Nationals right now, but as we've discussed, they have played better than their record suggests, which I guess is only some small consolation. But they're five games back in the division because yeah. divisions are so close. The White Sox are six games back in their division, right? Even though they started the season the way that they started it. The Cardinals, even with the way they started the season, they're tied with the Cubs in the standings. They're five games back. These teams are within reach. The Reds are four games back, right? So, you know, you you have hope and faith, as uh, Bud Selig said, right? So almost every team at this point can kind of uh, count itself not completely out of it. I think that's nice. Yeah, I think that that's 
I think that that's nice. It's a good, it's a good thing, you know, mm-hmm. but also, man, it's, it's just hard to forget that they exist, you know? They're trying know. so hard to have us not think about them at all, but. That's what I was saying last week about how, like, I can't look away and I, I feel bad, but I'm riveted to these, right? Yeah. In the way that I used to be by the super teams. It's like, how high can they go? How many games can this Dodgers team win? There's something about the extremes that is compelling. So I have to balance that, I guess, with my league-wide sense that it's probably better for more teams to be competitive and more matchups to be competitive. And yet in terms of individual storylines, I'm drawn to the teams that are historically great or historically terrible. So there's been a lot of fodder in that arena lately, which has not been good for baseball, but has led to a lot of content, I guess. So sort of mixed incentives there, maybe as uh, someone who creates content about baseball. So did just want to note when it comes to extremes, we talked about Jose Abreu and his homerlessness, and he is no longer homerless. He has homered finally. He is on the board. He has Mm. hit one homer. Now, he has not really improved his stats overall that much since we talked about him. He has a 49 WRC+, which was roughly where he was the last time we talked about him, but he has a homer, and his homer was notable not just because it was his first, but also because he sprinted around the bases. This was not a home run trot. This was a home run sprint by someone who you don't really associate with sprinting. Mm -mm. His sprint speed on this home run trot, if we can call it that, was 26.2 feet per second. His sprint speed on the season is 25.4. So he home run trotted faster than his sprint speed on the season, which has to be pretty unusual, I would think. It was the second fastest home run trot of the season, according to MLB.com. The article did not specify which the first was, which, come on, if you're going to tell me it was the second fastest, tell me what the fastest was. You're sparking my curiosity here. But I'm guessing it was someone faster than Jose Abreu. So he sprinted around the bases. He slid into... The dugout, basically, as if he was sliding into home plate because he was just so euphoric that he had finally hit a home run. Yeah. That should count toward his sprint speed. Like, I agree. On sprint speed, they they eliminate non-competitive runs. Like They try to <laughs> narrow it down to just close plays where you're actually running all out so that your slow runs don't drag down your sprint speed. But right. for him... They got to include, they got to make a special exception for this home run trot because this was him at top speed. And it's funny because baseball is an extremely silly sport. People had to talk about like whether this was an unwritten rules violation for him to do this. So Dusty Baker had to defend him and say he wasn't, he wasn't trying to show up anybody. He was just happy for himself and his team was happy for him. Oh, good grief. This was against the A's, of course. So the A's, (laughs) the Astros hit seven homers, I think, in that game. So if you're going to hit one finally, I guess uh, odds are maybe if, if you break that slide against anyone, maybe it'll be the A's. So I don't know if it didn't seem to make him any less exuberant the fact that this came against Oakland A's pitching. But A's manager Mark Kotze also said, I have the utmost respect for Abreu and his career and what he's accomplished. I'm sure it was a lot of frustration going into that time frame and for him, a lot of excitement and it showed. So don't worry, no one's mad at Jose Abreu. 
<laughs> no one's going to plunk okay. Jose Abreu from the sound of it. But what a silly thing that we even have to say that. <laughs> Cooler heads prevailed, more reasonable. I mean, not yeah. prevailed. That makes it sound like there was someone who was angling yeah. to be agitated. What I, I right. mean is I don't like, know if anyone was. It, it may right. just be that, that writers asked them about this and it wasn't actually a controversy at all, but they were asked to comment <sighs> about it. I have no idea. That's but. me going, ah, <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, happy for Jose Abreu. Yeah. Hope he hits another one someday. And <laughs> I know that you are always on the watch for umpire hot mic situations. I am. And we had one oh, over yeah. the weekend, and it was a doozy. Oh, yeah. Just, this is not like a broadcaster hot mic situation. Some of those can be fun, too. Yeah. They're not all Brenneman situations. But right. the umpire hot mic situations may be the best of the best, right? I mean, whether it's ass in the jackpot, whether it's some of the previous examples we've talked about of umps being mic'd up on the field. Like, this was the thing you were, I think, maybe most psyched about with umps being mic'd up on the field. As I recall, you were fully in favor of this just from a clarity perspective, explaining what is actually happening to people in the ballpark and on the broadcast, but also umps mic'd up. Right. There was a greater possibility that they would say something while right. their mic was active. Yep. And that has happened yep. wonderfully from time to time. So in, in this case, there was a Marlins challenge over the weekend in a Marlins-Angels game on, on Saturday, and the Marlins challenged a call in the 10th inning. They thought that Angels catcher Matt Dice had never touched home plate on what was called a double play, and the Marlins challenged, and an umpire was seemingly caught mocking the challenge. Yeah. So is Thais on home plate? That's the question. Might be off. Might be overturned. Now, home plate umpire C.B. Buckner had a, a really good Miami's look at Miami's challenging the out call at home plate. But the Marlins are going to challenge that. They got their heads up their ass. And Let's go. Obviously he said they got their heads up their ass. Like yep. The Marlins are challenging. They got their heads up their ass. And... The fun part, I mean, there were many fun parts, but the fun part was that the call was reversed. Yeah. And it was overturned, and the Marlins got another run, yeah. which was important. I mean, it was a, a game that went to extras, and, and the Marlins ended up winning eight to five. So this was an important run. So if he was, in fact, saying that the Marlins had their heads up their ass for challenging yeah. this call— then he was very wrong, but uh, it it echoed, it reverberated in his stadium. That's it's like you know, there's that little like PA sounds, like heads up their ass, up yeah. their ass, up their <laughs> yeah, it like reverberates uh, it. through, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which uh, I guess you want as an umpire to maintain impartiality. Yeah. Now maybe it doesn't matter because the ump who was he doesn't get to this, decide, right? Yeah, He's not determining right. their success or failure on the challenge. Yeah, yeah. but still, still, like, it uh, doesn't. If, it's not if great. the replay umps were listening to this right. and they heard their colleague say call into question the challenge, you might already worry. Like, would replay umps be hesitant to overturn one of their colleagues' calls? I, I don't know that there's uh, any evidence to that fact. I think we're all used to the fact that umpires are fallible now and, and they want to get these calls right with replay. But if the ump is uh, 
overheard saying that this call was like so so obviously correct that that a team was misguided and challenging right. then you wonder could that possibly influence the review but it certainly wasn't decisive in this case it's a funny moment to get miffed like on the one hand i guess because it was the 10th inning right yes so like on the one hand you're like ready to go home <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're like, I anticipated working a certain amount this day, and I am now working more than that amount, and I'm ready to go home. So on the one mm-hmm. hand, you understand. But on the other hand, it's like, you that's absolutely the time to challenge. Like, even if you have a low probability of winning the challenge and getting the, the outcome you want, like, you can't take them with you. So you mm-hmm. may as well challenge in that moment and try to get a run and, you know, go home a winner, like with mm-hmm. more margin. It makes it's it's such a funny time to get miffed because it's like even if they don't think it's gonna work, they should still do it. Like mm-hmm. they should still do it. That seems mm-hmm. like good use of replay. That's a good strategy. So it's just a it makes him sound even grumpier than he <laughs> was because of the moment that he was in. It's like, no, like, that should be doing that. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. that. All right. One email today. This is from Lister and Patreon supporter Joe, who said, I was watching the MLB TV highlights, and the first one was Starling Marte's go-ahead opposite field homer. Now, this was a highlight we'll link to on the show page. This was May 21st. And Joe writes, I've had this nagging feeling this season that the ball is jumping off of bats this year in ways that don't seem normal. Mm. And this homer pushed me to ask you whether there's anything to this. It's very possible that my couple of years hiatus from watching games on TV made me miss the really juiced ball. So seeing the less juiced ball, but still way juicier than 2004 ball is throwing me off. But is there anything unusual about this year's home run rate? Marte's swing here looks like a fly out to medium deep right center, not a clear homer, or is it just me? I think it surprises me a a little bit off the bat. It's not the greatest disconnect between swing and contact and result that I've ever seen. But I don't know whether off the bat I would have immediately assumed that was a homer as opposed to maybe a a wall ball or a a deep gapper. So I I see what Joe's saying, and especially if he has been away for a while (laughs) and he missed the peak of the juiced ball era that he might come back and be like, whoa, the ball didn't used to travel, whereas uh, we are acclimated to the ball traveling like that, right? right? So there probably is something to that. But there's also something to the idea that the ball is still quite lively, just like in a historical sense. Like we don't talk about that and fixate on that as much as we did when the ball first really started jumping mid-2015 and then into 2016 and then 2017 was a spike and then 2019 was wild. Wild. But we are still, so far this year, the home run rate on contact. So that is home runs divided by at-bats minus strikeouts. So a percentage of the non-strikeout at-bats that are home runs. Right. 4.6%. And again, it's still May. So you would expect this to increase as the weather warms up. Yes. But even now, comparing to previous full season rates, this is the fifth highest home run per contact rate ever, right? So like we don't talk about this that much because 2019 was 5.5% and – 2020 was 5.3%, and 2021 was 5.0%, and 2017 was 4.9%. So comparatively speaking, 
4.6 is not that high. This is back to roughly 2018 or 2016 levels. But when 2016 happened, we were like, whoa, (laughs) right? Because it's so influenced by the preceding seasons, the surrounding seasons, that it's like we were just numb to the ball jumping off the bat because we all saw 2017, we all saw 2019. Now everything looks comparatively tame, but if you just woke up and and missed the rest of of this high home run era, then you would be like, whoa, what the heck is happening here? Why is this not the the constant, you know, if you're Rip Van Winkle and you're coming back to baseball, (laughs) I mean, I guess Rip Van Winkle, well, uh, if he went to sleep for a hundred years, then, you know, he still would have been in the live ball era. He would have seen Babe Ruth if he was a hundred years ago, but it really is so dependent on what happened just before, which uh, makes things seem extreme or not by comparison. Well, and then I and then my brain started doing really weird things in 2019 where sometimes I would be first in the beginning of 2019, I was like, how is that a home run? How is that a home run? How is that a home run? Over and over and over again because the ball was so juicy. It felt like it was dripping juice. And then I got to a point in that season where I had like flipped all the way around and I was like, how is that not a home run? Like, isn't that a home mm-hmm. run? Isn't everything a home run? Is there Are there any hits that aren't home runs? Yeah, right. <laughs> like, and so it can, I think it can be like pretty profoundly disorienting. And that's been, mm-hmm. that's been a big source of the complaint, right? It's like yeah. what, like, calibrating y- yourself to the, to the juiciness of the ball at the beginning of every new season is exhausting. It's like, I don't mm-hmm. know what, <sighs> It's like, I'm in my late 30s. Am I in my late 30s now? My mid 30s. I'm still 36. What is that? Is that your, I, that's still I think your that's mid, mid, right? Yeah, because uh, otherwise, what's mid? Like only 35 is mid? Right. No, so that when you're on either sense. side, that's mid. Will I still be in my mid 30s in a couple of weeks when I turn 37? Um, oh. Yes, I'm going to charitably say yes. Oh, man. <laughs> I, I had to think about it. Though. I'm going to return to the home run thing in a hot second, but I had to take one of the cats to get um, booster shots. You know, they, mm-hmm. she had to get vaccine shots. And they had a little uh, poster on the wall in the vet's office while we were waiting for the, the vet to come in um, on the life stages of cats. And mm. I think, um, well, we shouldn't do the kitten one because that's weird, but I, I think that we should adopt their um, life stages nomenclature because mm. you go junior, prime, mm-hmm. mature, senior, and then geriatric. And I think that that's great. We need something other than kitten because don't call people kittens. So that's gross. Mm-hmm. But like their their prime range, they they put a, a the age of the cat. And then they put the human equivalent, and their mm. prime runs from 28 to 40, and then mature, which sounds so distinguished, Ben, like, mm-hmm. you know, like you're a philanthropist, <laughs> runs from 44 to 56. I think it's great. It's a new, it's our new, it's, not bad. it's our yeah. new approach, you know? Well, I don't want to have to fill out age-specific um, boxes when I, like, do surveys and stuff. I, mm-hmm. I just want to be able to say, no, I'm prime. I'm a prime. I'm a prime yeah. gal. You know, I'm in, in my prime still. Well, Don Lemon recently learned that uh, it can be dangerous to pronounce when a person or a woman's prime is. Yes. So that's, that could be problematic, too. I, I but guess, I can uh, declare myself to be can, in my prime. Yes, you can yeah. label yourself that yeah, way. Yeah, don't do what Don want. Lemon did. That was bad. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, getting back to the home runs. Mm-hmm. This one didn't super surprise me. It looked like, and I guess we could look up the stat cast on it, but it struck me as one that 
you know, it was like a high arcing home run because it didn't go so deep. It was mm-hmm. in a deep fish part of the park, but it wasn't like it got planted, you know, like, ah, it wasn't mm-hmm. a wall scraper, but it wasn't like, you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. it didn't, I don't know, maybe I'm, maybe I need to recalibrate my home run detection instrument, yeah. you know? Or Joe does. I guess it needs a, a tune up. It needs an update, right? Because the ball has been updated <sighs> multiple times. Well, up, really, allegedly. <laughs> well, we know <laughs> Update, of. Uh, updated implies an intent that I think yes, is lacking. At least one update that was actually intentional, yes, which was. True. And that people said, oh, the ball is, is dead now, right? Like people were calling last year's ball dead. Yeah. And I was like, Relative to very recent seasons, sure. Right. But the 2022 home right. run rate on contact was the eighth highest ever. Right. It was below only the very most recent seasons. It right. was higher than the peak of the PED era, higher right. than 2000, 2001, 99, et cetera. So even that, like dead ball, I mean, only in comparison to the, the very recent seasons, not the whole sweep of history. So yeah, it is highly dependent on what has happened lately. Anyway, I do think that uh, baseball player aging helps us get used to the idea of mortality. Like it it can be a reminder of mortality in an unpleasant way. But look, we talk about baseball players primes all the time, right? It's just, it's very compressed and accelerated. Right. You go from young to old in baseball in a span of, what, 15 years, right? And that, it kind of uh, helps us get used to the idea of how that plays out over a, a full lifespan, the athletic lifespan, which is sort of depressingly short, but we use the same sort of terms for it, right? Yeah. I mean, one day you're a young up-and-comer, you're you're a prospect, you're whatever term we use for young prospect and players. And Sometimes next we thing just you know, call them youngsters, you know? Yeah, and then you're in your prime, next thing you know, and then you snap your fingers and you're you're past your prime, right? You're on the, the wrong side of 30, as people say. You're mature. You're See? mature, you're we a gotta, mature player. We right. got to reframe our mindset, mm-hmm. Ben. You're not okay. past your prime, you're mature, again. Yeah distinguished like you know get some right. some chunky glasses in a fu- mm-hmm. in a fun color you know some yeah. fun and some big jewelry and it's like you're you know helping to fund an art installation mm-hmm. yeah rich hill is on the low end of that mature range right the cat the cat adjusted right. mature range so yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's encouraging there you okay go. all right and uh and one follow-up we, we talked about and we answered an email about various scenarios and whether they would qualify as immaculate innings or not, especially with the pitch clock included and possible violations. So just one more along those lines from Manuel, who said, I had another hypothetical scenario for the immaculate innings slash pitch clock situation. Let's say a pitcher throws nine pitches, all for strikes, but the hitter had a pitch clock violation called. For example, first two hitters go down swinging on three pitches each, but the third hitter gets an automatic called strike for the first pitch of his at bat, then swings at the first pitch, second strike, hits a foul ball on the second pitch to extend the at bat, and strikes out swinging on the third and last pitch of the at bat. Would you consider this an immaculate inning? Even if there were technically 10 strikes, the pitcher threw nine strikes and pitches, all four strikes, and the pitcher wasn't at fault for the violation called on the hitter. So we talked about whether an eight-pitch inning plus a pitch clock violation for the ninth strike would qualify. This is 
an extra strike. It's right. nine actual pitches that you were throwing all strikes. But then there is also a pitch clock violation on top of that. Hmm. Hmm. When the pitcher throws his first pitch to the batter in this scenario, he's or the batter's already down 0-1, right? Yes, that's right. So he, the batter, is already down 0-1. Pitcher is ahead. Does it right. change the behavior of the hitter? Like, is he... But he does foul it off, so does it matter? Like, I'm just trying mm-hmm. to understand... Does this shift? I mean, it obviously shifts the balance of the at bat in the pitcher's favor somewhat because yeah. he's ahead. Right. Yeah. You'd have a different mindset. You'd have different, a different mindset. Yeah. So, a, right. Maybe that's, hmm. maybe that's enough to, to change it and be like, eh, yes. Yeah. You know what I mean? I think I agree. I think I agree. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to say no. Doesn't I'm gonna count. I'm going to say no. Doesn't count. Okay. And two other responses we got to emails we answered. We talked about a hypothetical of a player who's incredible in AAA and can't hit at all in the majors, just like the most extreme quadruple A player you could ever imagine. Yeah. I meant to mention that player would probably try his hand overseas at some point. Oh, right? yeah. Like we were talking about him just trying over and over again at AAA, maybe getting a shot every now and then. But you got to figure that that guy would at least go to NPB and see whether his allergy to the majors also applies to other countries' major leagues right. or not, right? Because the pay would be better. It's a higher level of competition. So that would probably be a recourse for that player. I don't know whether it would help them conquer whatever it is that's holding them back in the big leagues, but they could at least find out the limits of, right. of this ailment. Right. They would come to understand sort of what the what the situation is. Yes. Unless they had an, a reputation before a team approached them about going overseas that they were haunted. So well, yeah, that. it would be a risk because uh, international leagues, often you only have so many roster spots you can devote right. to foreign players. And so are you going to spend one of those? On, and a, on a guy who's some, haunted? Right. <laughs> but it would happen. They would at least find out. And then yes. the other response, we talked about a, a hypothetical scenario where the runners that a team strands at the end of an inning are then inherited by the opposing team yes. when the next half inning starts. Yes. And we talked about how would you decide which runners they are, who actually stays on the bases. Right. And some people pointed out that you could just handle that the way that they handle the zombie runner. Sure. Right? Which is that you can just have the people who, who made the last out would just be up there and be those runners. So that would one that'd be one way to solve that problem, which is not the only issue with no. that hypothetical. But we were talking about how you'd handle that. So there is a, a framework for for handling that same sort of situation. And and people were like, I can't believe they didn't think of it. And I am here to say, well, sure, maybe. But also, we don't like the extra inning stuff. So, of course, it wouldn't <laughs> be a thing we'd gravitate toward without direction. Uh-huh. Well, that is uh, a great face-saving explanation. Thank you. For, for, and also a great segue into the Stat mm. Blast, because uh, yeah. that is kind of going to be the topic today. So let's play the Stat Blast song.
All right. So the Stat Blast is brought to you by Tops Now. And we extol the virtues of Tops Now every week in this space, in this segment. And we tell you the way it works, works the same way this week as it worked last week. And that's that there is something exciting that happens in a baseball game. And they make a card of that thing. Just yeah. a quick turnaround. You don't have to wait the way you once had to wait for the start of the next season and the new set comes out and maybe there's a card that highlights something that happened that previous season and you say, oh, yeah, that happened. But more likely, there is no card to commemorate that because it's one of a zillion things that happened during a baseball season. And maybe it's a fun fact on someone's card if the card has fun facts. But you don't have a dedicated card produced for that. That was not the way that baseball cards worked. Well, it's the way they work now, or it's at least the way that Tops Now works. So something cool happens. You say, hey, that would be a cool collectible. I want to display that somewhere. It's a nice keepsake. I was at that game. I'm a fan of that team or that player. That was a really cool thing that happened. And what do you know? There is instantly a baseball card of that that you can purchase the very next day. Yeah. Get it shipped to you for free once you pay the price for the card itself. I always feel like I have to clarify. You do have <laughs> to. Truth in advertising, like the entire thing is not free. No. But, but the shipping But the is shipping free. is free. I, yeah. People are probably familiar with the concept of free shipping and it not necessarily implying a free product but just, just to in clarify. case we just want yeah. we you know we want there to be truth in advertising <laughs> uh, yeah. and i don't want to get tops in trouble here yeah ben i don't know for sure because we haven't um seen the cards but mm-hmm. i wouldn't be surprised for instance if that royce lewis uh, home run wasn't a tops now card that seems Could tops be. now I worthy mean, I would think that Liam Hendricks, if he, whether his return gets a card or his first outing yeah. gets a card, like Liam Hendricks, I would guess he's going to get himself a Tops Now card yeah. again. We have no foreknowledge of the Tops card, Now card selection. We don't. But, but generally when I see him, I'm like, yep, that makes sense. Yeah. And rarely do I see them and, and not see a thing that seems like it was now worthy. So yeah. I think they, they do a decent job of selecting those things. So go check them out because they're available for a limited time only. There's a new selection of cards every day. So check out Tops Now. There's a link on the show page. And the tagline goes, your hero, your team, your moment. And our hero for this segment is actually going to be a guest stat blaster. We're going to have a little help with this one. I don't think there is a stauncher ally in baseball media when it comes to the zombie runner than Rob Means of Baseball Prospectus. It makes me happy every time I read one of his pieces because so often he will mention the zombie runner with scorn and spite that normally only I can muster. So not only is he an ally just in the general campaign against the zombie runner, but also in the campaign to call it the zombie runner. And you just can't take that for granted when you read baseball writing these days. So naturally, I perked up when Rob wrote something about the zombie runner last week, because I know that like me, Rob is always looking for ammunition in the fight, which is not to suggest that he would be biased in his research. (laughs) Not at all. (laughs) Never. (laughs) However, if he did uncover something that was notable about the zombie runner, then he might be motivated to bring it to our attention. So Rob joins us now. Hello, Rob. Welcome back. Hi, Ben. Hi, Meg. So you wrote about the impact of the zombie runner on home field advantage. How did you get interested in this topic? Well, I wasn't intending to go after the zombie runner. It just worked out 
uh, that way. Um, I was talking to my parents on a Zoom call, and my dad, who really doesn't care about baseball but tries to ask a question of me just to feign interest, asked me whether home teams do better in extra inning games. And mm-hmm. my inclination was to say, well, sure, because you can walk a team off, you know, you know exactly how many runs you have to score. It would seem that the ability to score runs without having the other team respond would, you know, that, that would be an advantage. Mm-hmm. When I looked at the numbers, though, it turned out that was not the case. Overall, teams win, you know, about 54% of home games and roughly 54% of home games that finish within nine innings. But if you look back over the entire arc of the 30-team era, you know, since 1998, they've won only 52% of games that are in extra innings, two Mm -hmm. percentage points less, which is, you know, it's not a big difference, but over a sample of going back you know, more than two decades, that's not a small sample size. Mm-hmm. And so I was looking at the individual years and lo and behold, <laughs> guess what I found out? That the teams playing before the zombie runner, that's in the years 1998 to uh, 2019, the difference in their winning percentage from the first nine innings to extra inning games was they dropped about 18 points of winning percentage. They went from Mm -hmm. 540 to uh, 521. In the three years that we've had the zombie runner, 2021 and 22, teams have still won about 54% of their games in the first nine innings. But you go into extra innings, they've actually been under 500, 249 and 251, which you know, is not only not what you would intuitively expect, it's also not what you'd expect based on the data. You'd expect the teams would do maybe a little bit worse, not that much worse. And it raises a question that I think is valid, which is what is going on that is exacerbating what's an existing situation that, you know, it seems to go against home teams. Mm -hmm. And what's the zombie runner doing to make that situation worse? Right. Do you have an explanation for why home teams historically have not done as well in extra inning games as in non-extra inning games? Do I personally? No. Does one <laughs> of our smart commenters at mm-hmm. Baseball Prospectus? Yes. A guy uh, came up with a possibility that I thought about, and I think it may make sense. And, you know, it's the old don't bring in your best reliever in a tie game when you're on the road. Mm. Um, It may be a situation that if you go into extra innings and you're the home team, you're not necessarily going to have your uh, closer on the mound to start the 10th. However, if the visiting team can score in the top of the 10th or the top of the 11th or whatever, they are more likely to bring in um, their closer if they haven't burned him already. So I think it could be, and I haven't looked at the data to uh, check this, but I think that explanation does make sense that the kind of first mover advantage for the visiting team may give them an advantage in terms of bullpen strategy as well. Yeah. And it may have been another BB commenter who mentioned this, but could it also be just that extra inning games tend to be toss-ups? I mean, by their nature, the fact that they go to extra innings, they're close games. And so some of the randomness that comes into one-run games, extra inning games often are one-run games or are similarly close. And I guess you could say that 
well, I will get into this when we talk about the zombie runner, that maybe the longer the game goes, the greater the advantage could be for the home team if, if it's kind of cumulative, if it's not concentrated in certain innings. And I, I know there's some research that says that maybe it's the first inning when the home field advantage is most pronounced that visiting pitchers do worse. But if it was kind of an incremental advantage, the more you play and the longer you play, then maybe if the game didn't go as long, if you're talking about it's tied for most of the game and then the separator is however many innings you play in extras, then there would be less time for the home team to accumulate that advantage. Does that make some sort of sense? Yeah, that actually does. That was a second uh, test that one of the readers suggested I do. It said, why don't you look at games that are tied after eight and see how the home team does. And what I did is I made a subset of that. Tied after eight, but completed within nine. So you don't have the pollution of what might happen in extra innings going on. And sure enough, again, the home team's winning percentage dropped by about two percentage points. Now, uh-huh. the corollary of that, which made me think is, well, maybe it's just a basic question that the teams that wind up going into extra innings are not the better teams, that the best teams, they win, and then they don't have to play beyond that. And I look, home teams. And I looked into that theory. That was my theory. Completely wrong. There's absolutely no relationship between team one lost record and propensity to play extra inning games. So at home, so scratch that. But I think the idea that close games just tend to sort of throw the home field advantage uh, for a loop makes sense. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you dove into the year-by-year data to see whether this theory made sense, this hypothesis that the zombie runner has made it harder for home teams to win an extra inning. So what happens when you look at it more granularly and go season by season? Yeah, that's where, and in my defense of what I'm going to say, which is sort of going to torpedo some of my hypothesis, I did write my entire baseball prospectus annual essay this year (laughs) on the evils of the zombie runner. So I'm not trying to clear anybody here. (laughs) However, if you look at it year by year, in 2020, teams, home teams were 34 and 34 in extra innings. In 2021, they were 102 and 114. That's a 472 winning percentage. However, last season, they were 113 and 103, which is 52.3%, which is about you know in line with long-term averages. And we're not far into the season, but home teams have been sensational in extra innings so far this year. They're 36 and 25. That's a 590 winning percentage. And so I had an idea that maybe... It's a matter of what I call assimilation. Maybe home teams went into this with some strategies, I'm not sure which ones, that didn't seem to work out. They refined them. Maybe it's using your better relievers in the top of the 10th, I'm not sure, that now they're doing better in extra innings. So I think that there may be, you know, we may see what happened in 20 and 21 dissipate. Okay. So we still don't have a huge sample of zombie runner seasons. Of course, 2020 was a shortened season. So when I saw your article, this sparked a memory in me of a years old article that talked about the impact of the zombie runner on home field advantage in the minors, which at the time that piece was published, suggested that there had been a similar impact, that it was harder for home teams to win with the zombie runner. And since the zombie runner has been in effect in the minors since 2018, 
15 and you've got lots of teams and lots of levels and a bigger sample there, I suggested that you try to look into that. It's kind of tough to acquire that data, but you did with assistance from some people at BP. So does that support or refute our hypothesis here? Yeah, and all hail to Robert Au at Baseball Prospectus for getting this data for me. Unfortunately, <laughs> um, we may not have gotten exactly the results that you and I might have wanted, or the mm-hmm. three of us might have wanted. <laughs> Here's what, and what I did is I, I looked at the four years before the zombie runner, you know, 14, 15, 16, 17, and then the four years after, 18, 19, 21, and 22. And I looked at... For And, you know, they fiddled with the minor leagues, so not all leagues were around for all eight seasons. But for leagues that were in operation for all eight of those years, I broke down AAA, AA, A, and rookie ball. And one thing I will say about the minor leagues is that you don't have as pronounced a home field advantage as you do in the majors. And it's pretty, it's maybe about a 52.5% or so home team winning percentage. And think about it. If you're a class A team and you got a short uh, right field fence, you can't build a team of all left-handed pull hitters. You know, you're going to you can't optimize your roster for your home park the way you can in the majors. So, you've got that to work with. But here's what I found. Triple A. If you look over the 4 years before the Zombie Runner was in, Triple A teams won f- 52.6% of their games in the complete within nine innings, they won 53.5% afterwards. So they actually did nine points better after nine innings than they did before. Once the zombie runner came in, they had a 515 winning percentage uh, in the first nine innings, went down. Their winning percentage in the in extras actually went up 53.9%. So they had a 24-point increase in their winning percentage post-zombie runner, which nets out to being that they were 15 points better with the zombie runner in extra innings than without. So then looked at AA, and I won't give you all the numbers here, but in AA, teams did about nine points worse in the first nine innings before the zombie runner, and they did about nine points worse in the first nine innings after the zombie runner. So the zombie runner didn't make a difference, didn't make things worse, didn't make it better. Class A, where you've got a fairly robust sample because there are a lot of teams that play A ball, 14 points worse in extra innings before the zombie runner and 17 points worse uh, after we got the zombie runner. So that's a little bit more in line with what we saw in the majors, but it's not a big difference. And then rookie ball, 24 points worse before the zombie runner, 16 points worse after, so they actually got a little bit better as well. So overall, what we got is that minor league teams before the zombie runner came into effect were about 11 points worse in their winning percentage in extra innings than they were in the first nine innings of games. So that was their deficit, mm-hmm. 11 points. In the With the zombie runner that deficit dropped to nine points. Mm -hmm. So they've actually done negligibly better with the zombie runner than without. So that made me think, okay, is there a pattern to this in terms of the years? Is this acclimation theory make any sense? 
And here are the winning percentage of minor league teams in extra innings starting in 2018, which is the first year they all had the zombie runner. 516, it dropped down to 503 in 2019, but then 2021 jumped up to 523, and 2022 jumped up to 525. Mm-hmm. Now, on one hand, you look at that and you say, yeah, maybe there is some sort of learning process that you have to do in extra innings games once you have the zombie runner. <laughs> you know, on the other hand, if there is a learning process, you'd think that's something that the major league teams might have been aware of before yeah. this thing all started. Yeah. And we didn't see, we didn't, you know, we saw pretty horrendous records in uh, extra inning games for the fir- in extra innings the first two years, at least, of the zombie runner. So... I, the the sample size in the minors, which is obviously more robust, would suggest that maybe what we've seen in the majors so far is a mirage, but I hope not. <laughs> well, as we were saying, if there's something to the idea that there's less of a home field advantage in extra innings just because it's close and also because there are just fewer extra innings in which the home team can separate itself, then it would make sense in theory that with the zombie runners shortening extra inning games so that there are fewer extra innings even than there were before, then there's even less time now for the home team to separate itself. And so that might have some modest muting effect on home field advantage, but it would be small, presumably. And so I guess you sum it all up. If you just look at the full major league sample of zombie runner seasons, then it seems like, yes, the zombie runner has certainly hurt home field advantage. But if you look at the minors and if you break it down season by season in the majors, then it looks more and more like that may just have been a blip. But time will tell unless uh, somehow we are spared the scourge of the zombie runner. Right. By the way, with the asterisk, of course, that home teams in general do worse in the minors than the majors. So there's Mm -hmm. less of an advantage for them to fritter away, I guess. Hmm. Well, here's my question for both of you. Hmm. Would this actually be a bad thing, right? Because we're talking about it as if add this to the pile of reasons to oppose the zombie runner. And I was thinking about whether that's true. Obviously, I'm inclined to to take anything as further support. (laughs) Like, yes, another reason to say that the zombie runner is bad. But this would be far down the list, I think, on my personal list of arguments against the zombie runner if it had a a tiny effect on (laughs) minimizing home field advantage. I guess that gets to the question of, is home field advantage good? I mean, it's a fact. It's reality, not just in baseball, but pretty much every sport, and it's incredibly consistent over time. But is it a bug or is it a feature or is it Neither does it actually sway our enjoyment of sports or baseball specifically one way or the other. Hmm, what a good question, Ben. Does it sway? <laughs> I I guess if you want to make an argument in favor of home field advantage, you might argue that in general it's nice for the fans who actually go to the ballpark, question mm-hmm. mark, because presumably not always, but they are often going to be fans of the home team. They are going mm-hmm. to root, root, root for the home team, as <laughs> yes. it were. And so maybe it is good to have a slight home field advantage to satisfy the folks who actually make their way out to the ballpark, even if yeah. it's only a marginal one, you know. And, like, it's not as if you go in and you're like, I'm never going to see a win today because, you know, home team. 
you know, yeah. home team. That's not <laughs> the way that you interact with it, but maybe it's good that it's it's slightly more likely yeah. that they see you when, I don't know. I was thinking that too, although I guess then the question is, when does it become too much advantage? Because uh, what if the home team just won the vast majority of the time and, and home fans always went home happy? Well, that would be bad, right? Because then the outcome would be too predictable. If you just won all your home games and lost all your road games, then that would be boring. There'd be no suspense. And so you could say, okay, well, if suspense is good, if you want uncertainty in the outcome, then actually it would be better for there to be no home field advantage whatsoever, right? So that's kind of if you take it to the the logical extremes, either home field advantage is good, therefore we want home teams to win more. It would be better if they won even more. And then you think, well, actually, that would be bad. So if we take that to the logical extreme, then maybe it's bad to have any edge. But I think you're kind of right. Like, it's not enough to notice really you know right. it's like you can't you could go to the ballpark every day and you wouldn't actually be able to perceive i mean you just you win 54% of your home games roughly right. you wouldn't even notice that especially if you're not going to every single game so it's just a little nudge yeah. it's just a, a little extra likelihood of the home fans going home happy but it's so subtle that they don't perceive it as right. affecting the uncertainty of the outcome. So right. yeah. maybe it's just the right amount yeah. of edge. I feel like it's di- it's dialed in at a, a good level. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, this is a little bit of a straw man argument, but it's better than it is in just about every other sport, right? And yeah. NFL, NHL, and NBA, I think, have more pronoun- – and I, th- I think soccer, I don't know. But they, they all have better home <laughs> team advantages, I believe – than, than MLB does. Hmm. So so if, and, if it's a bug, it's less of a bug here than elsewhere. And I guess the other advantage, because uh, people might hear you say that and, and wonder why, right? And home field advantage, like what subject has inspired more research over yeah. the years than the cipher, the mystery of home field advantage? Everyone trying to figure out why does it exist? Why is it more pronounced in some sports than others? Uh, just the literature in baseball alone People trying to determine, well, is it that you know the nooks and crannies of the ballpark? Is it that you get to sleep in your own bed before the game and you're better rested and, you know, you you didn't have to travel and you're not jet lagged or you uh, know the, the batter's eye or whatever it is, right? Or maybe it's the officiating, as people have suggested. Right. Maybe it's the umpires who are subtly swayed by not wanting to anger the home crowd and be booed on close call. So there's just such a, a body of work over the decades of people trying to answer those questions that for geeks like us who are interested in the minutia of sports, we just devoted this segment to talking about whether the Sabi <laughs> Rudder has slightly, slightly made home teams a little bit less likely to win in, in extra innings. And I'm just, I'm interested in that. I'm interested in why that would be. So for the kind of people who get into the nitty gritty, I guess it's given us a lot to talk about over the decades. Yeah. So, Rob, uh, we will link to your article on the show page. Thank you for looking into this so diligently and for carrying on the campaign against the zombie runners. We are just uh, voices wandering in the wilderness, crying out and uh, largely being ignored. But I'm I'm glad that we're keeping it up. Yeah. And thanks for the idea of looking at the minor league uh, teams, even though the answer wasn't quite as satisfactory as uh, we might have wanted. 
Yeah, again, I don't I don't know if I have a, a horse in this race. I, I definitely am anti-zombie runner, but I just, I don't know how much this uh, affects my anti. I'm already all the way anti. So right, this, you can't be, you but, can't uh, be, you know. Yeah, for you, but, you're animated about it then. Yeah, you know? and I don't think this is something that will really help the cause, you know. I don't think this will produce a lot of converts, even if we could convincingly demonstrate that it did subtly suppress home field advantage. Yeah. I don't think that would change a lot of minds and switch people over into the anti-zombie runner camp. So it may be neutral. It's just, it's kind of curious. And I was curious. So before we let you go, Rob, that was not the only piece you wrote last week. You wrote a piece headlined, The Man Who Got the Disabled List Changed to the Injured List, which shared a little bit of history that I was not aware of. And judging by the comments and the Twitter reaction, a lot of other people were not aware of. So can you tell us why you wrote about this? There was a specific reason why you did it now and why you got interested, how you got interested in this uh, change from the DL to the IL, which we've all become accustomed to. Yeah, and I was not aware of the history either until um, this event occurred. I have a cousin, uh, first cousin once removed, uh, who uh, lived in Boston, and I used to see him once a year or so, and he had a disability. He was a Paralympian, was on the U.S. Uh, Paralympic soccer team twice, and was a disability advocate, and that's pretty much what I knew of him of my cousin Ben Wolf. Um, his wife, also a disability advocate, is a physician, but was an eight-time winner of some international marathons in the wheelchair division and was also a Paralympian. And they have two young and adorable kids. And Eli, who was only 45, tragically died uh, in April. And when I was at his memorial service, uh, somebody mentioned that he had gotten Major League Baseball to change the disabled list to the injured list. And so I asked about this, and the person who had mentioned this in her eulogy said that I should contact Billy Bean. And so I, at MLB, who um, I think everyone listening is familiar with him and his role in MLB's DEI initiatives. Right. Not the, the Oakland A's Billy Bean. The, the, the Billy right. Bean without right. the E. At right, the right, yes. right. The B-E-A-N run. Mm -hmm. And he told me of the history of this and that Eli had written him a letter, not emailed, but written him a letter in the fall of 2018 um, saying that he felt that the disabled list should not be called that. The reason being... That And this is a name that baseball has used since 1915, if I remember right. And virtually every other sport, it's an injured list or an injured reserve list, but baseball uses the terminology disabled. And Eli wrote that the term, to call it a disabled list, to say that players can't perform because they're disabled, implies that people with disabilities can't perform athletic feats. And obviously that's not true. Um, yeah. He, you know, he and his wife, for example, millions of others are examples. And he said that injured would be a better moniker for the injured list. I talked to another disability advocate who had worked with Eli on a number of initiatives. And he told me that Eli had sent a similar letter to MLB uh, earlier during uh, Bud Selig's term. And 
it was politely answered, but nothing came of it. And what Billy said, the difference this time was, for one thing, this was something that had to get approved by the Players Association as well as by MLB, and this was between CBA negotiations, so the lines of communication were pretty open and um, congenial. And Billy said that when he brought it to Dan Halen and to Rob Manfred, they were very supportive. Uh, What the other person I spoke with who worked with Eli, a retired professor named Ted Fay, told me is that Billy was the difference and that he advocated for this. And he just said, this makes a lot of sense. And this was not a long, drawn-out process. Um, he uh, got the letter late in 2018. And in early 2019, Jeff Passan broke the news that MLB was going to change the disabled list to the injured list. And there's an article you can access on Sabre that talks about some of the online reactions to this. And as I said in my article, you'd get exactly the kind of reactions from exactly the type of the people Mm -hmm. you'd expect to react that way. But by and large, this went pretty smoothly. And Eli and Billy and other people at MLB kind of worked with teams, worked with broadcast crews, just to remind them that we're not using disabled, we're using injured. And to me, it's it's become a pretty seamless transition in that, you know, it, it may, not only does it make sense to call it the injured list, not only is it given the, the argument that Eli said the right thing to do, but it's a simple thing to do. Yeah. And um, it's, I think, a meaningful change, one that I was not aware of its genesis. I didn't really understand the import of it, but one I think that makes the sport better. Yeah, I, I think so too. It's uh, such a simple change. I mean, it was like flipping a switch. Okay, it's called this and not that now. Yeah. And obviously there was a bit of an adjustment period, a hundred years of habit of calling it one thing and then having to learn to call it a slightly different thing. And you still hear uh, people in the wild will we'll call it the DL from time to time, just out of ingrained habit. You grew up with that term, but it's the simplest thing. And if you just get used to it, then you don't even think about it anymore, really. It just becomes the new term, the new habit. So it's just such a a simple thing. And as you said, just a more accurate term and a a less exclusionary term, just a a nice change overall. And maybe, you know, a a high impact one relative to the effort it took to implement it. Well, and I think that because other sports do use injured and injured reserve as the vernacular. I mean, you're right that there was a transition, but I was struck at the time by how quickly, you know, there are still times where you'll turn on a a Guardians game and the visiting broadcast will slip up and refer to them Mm -hmm. by their old name. Um, But I don't really see that happen very often um, anymore. And I think because we already had, you know, for folks who are fans of other sports, they already had this frame of reference. It was a really easy shift And yeah, there were some trolls at the time, but even that response, I think, was fairly muted when you think about how that (laughs) segment of uh, the MLB fan base sometimes reacts to any kind of change that's perceived to be progressive or toward greater inclusion. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And I guess also just the the fact that 
he made the same appeal. I, I assumed that the letter he wrote both times was probably pretty similar, and it worked one time and did not work the other time just as a product of, you know, not his appeal, presumably, or of the righteousness of, of the cause, but just because maybe it was society as a whole had uh, changed in some ways that that made people more receptive to it at MLB. But it also might just be that there was literally one person who right. ha- had a job and a position there to do something about that and to be open to that who was not there previously, which uh, I guess that position existing is a, a product of that larger societal change, but still just goes to show that having even one person in place who would have that be something kind of in their remit or something that they would be receptive to that could make all the difference between something being embraced or not. Well, condolences on on Eli's uh, loss or the loss of Eli, but uh, I'm glad you could bring that story to light. It's a a nice legacy. It is. I just, you know, I'm sorry I found out about it the way I did, obviously. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks so much for, for joining us today to uh, talk about both of these things and to do research into the zombie runner. And uh, we're always happy to have you on. Always enjoy reading you and highly recommend that others do as well. Well, thanks. Great talking to you two again. Appreciate it. All right. So we will wrap up with the Pass Blast, which comes to us from David Lewis, who is an architectural historian and baseball researcher based in Boston, also comes to us from 2013. The league bans home plate collisions, David writes. At the 2013 winter meetings, Major League Baseball's Playing Rules Committee voted to prohibit potentially dangerous collisions on plays at the plate. Then San Francisco Giants manager Bruce Bochy, a former catcher himself, made a presentation to the committee in support of the rule change. He summed his position up well, saying, I think it's better to be proactive before we carry a guy off the field paralyzed and think, why didn't we change this rule? Some supported the rule on principle, but worried about its implementation and how it might affect how the game was played. Then Tigers manager Brad Osmus, also a former catcher, said, I'm a little bit old school in the sense that I don't want to turn home plate into just another tag play. This is a run. This is the difference between possibly making the playoffs and not making the playoffs. It should matter a little bit more. In my mind, I'd love to see something that if there's a collision, any hit above the shoulders, maybe the runner is out. I don't know how it's going to pan out. Mets GM Sandy Alderson spoke on behalf of the Rules Committee explaining why the proposed change came about and why they voted to support it. Ultimately, what we want to do is change the culture of acceptance that these plays are ordinary and routine and an accepted part of the game, that the risks and individual risks, the costs associated in terms of health and injury, just no longer warrant the status quo. The new rule, David concludes, while not fully worked out by the time of the winter meetings vote, sought to treat plays at the plate like tag plays at other bases. The catcher would need to provide the runner a lane and would risk an obstruction penalty if he did not. Similarly, the runner would be penalized if he chose to barrel into the catcher instead of taking the provided lane. You can make those plays without putting your body on the line, Angels manager Mike Sosha, another former catcher, said. I think that's what the game is trying to get to. After passing through the rules committee, the collision rule was approved 
approved by the MLBPA and was used beginning with 2014 spring training. Good rule. Glad we have it. Still sometimes confusion about this rule, right? About the way it's applied, but also I think the way it's understood by fans sometimes. Like, did you have possession and are you allowed to be there or not? So I think there's still a little bit of uncertainty sometimes about what is actually allowed, but we've definitely cut back significantly on the dangerous kind of yeah. plate collisions. And I don't miss them. No. <laughs> so happy to have this rule. Yeah, I I think um, they get beat up enough back there without yeah. having to risk such a terrible, you know, career altering, in some cases, potentially career ending and certainly damaging to them as people. So it's, mm-hmm. uh, it's good. This is good. Yeah. And on behalf of Grant Brisby, who always points this out, I feel obligated to say that even though people refer to this as the Buster Posey rule, there was a gap between this rule being instituted and Buster Posey's injury, which happened in May 2011. And again, this was very late 2013. And obviously, like the Posey injury, I think, contributed to the acceptance of all of this and and the idea that, okay, maybe we should do something about this. And you had Bruce Bochy, who was uh, Posey's manager, making a a case for it. Although even Posey at the time said that he wasn't supporting it just to protect Posey or because of Posey, that Bochy actually remembered a different catcher collision with Gary Bennett whom Bochy managed with the Padres in 2003 and Brian Jordan, the former football player, just ran into Bennett at the plate. So it was not just one injury that prompted Bochy to support this or for MLB to change it. And in fact, as Grant has noted, the proximate cause was to Alex Avila. Yeah. Yeah. Alex Avila was injured in the ALCS that year and that really started or renewed the conversation. It doesn't help that Buster Posey's injury is specifically mentioned in MLB's glossary and entry on collisions at home plate. Right, yeah, right. So, uh, you know, much like we might be fighting an uphill battle both against the zombie runner rule as a rule and ghost runner as a Mm -hmm. phrase, I worry that that Grant is, you know, fighting for a lost cause here. But he has my sword, so... Because these things get flattened and conflated. When right. we did our, our Stanky draft, the Eddie Stanky draft, which was episode 1813, that was a whole episode where we drafted rules that were prompted primarily by one player or one person. Right. But it gets really kind of squishy because it's like, was it actually that one person or was that part of a larger trend? And right. And after the fact, it just gets associated with the famous player. Oh, right. Buster Posey. We, we know Buster Posey should be a Hall of Famer, probably will be. Whereas Alex Avila, maybe not the household name that Buster Posey right. was and is. So it's like, after the fact, uh, hey, you know, 2011, 2013, that's basically the same. Whereas right. at the time, that's a couple of years. <laughs> it seems yeah. like a long time. Yeah. But decades or centuries later, it's like, uh, yeah, that's, uh, you know, same time, essentially. But it's interesting because Andrew McCutcheon recently spoke up to advocate a similar rule for base blocking at other bases. So this was uh, something that he said just earlier this month that he feels that there needs to be another rule change for for other bases because – Players are running much more with the steal rules and everything, the pickoff and and step-off rules. And so steals are up and success rates are up, although it does seem that they're 
if anything, going down slightly as the season goes on, not going up. You know, you you wondered, like, who's going to just figure this out as the season goes along? Will runners uh, exploit this even more or will defenses manage to counter it? It seems like, if anything, the latter is happening more than the former. But yeah. the point is more running going on. And so McCutcheon said, it's inevitable that someone is going to get hurt. The only thing we can do is slide cleats first and possibly injure the fielder or injure both of us. If MLB is all about preventing injuries like they do at the plate with the catcher, why isn't there a rule that says if you're receiving the ball on a steal attempt, you can't block the base? So this is really about the idea of like lowering the leg and right. just kind of blocking the base with with a knee, you know, right. with something hard that the runner could run into. And McCutcheon, this article mentions the uh, the Posey injury and the catcher rule and does sort of lump those two together. But McCutcheon, using the same rationale that was mustered at the time in support of that catcher rule, he said, it seems like something really bad has to happen before a rule change that makes perfect sense can take place. Why not do something now to protect the players and also maintain the integrity of the game? To me, it makes perfect sense to say you can't block the base. That's it. If the throw takes you there, okay, I get it but you can't intentionally camp out in the lane. So we'll see whether McCutcheon speaking out in support of this is enough to really get it on the radar and get something done or whether it will take another injury to press the matter. The article does say that according to a major league source, the Joint Competition Committee discussed a proposal on the issue during the offseason The committee decided to monitor the impact of the extra room for runners provided by the larger base and revisit whether to act after the 2023 season. So I guess this is something that was being considered even before McCutcheon's comments. Yeah, I I think that unfortunately it often takes like something catastrophic happening. But if we can be a little bit proactive and forward looking, like it's not it's not hard to anticipate the the downside scenarios here, right? The worst case scenarios. Mm-hmm. They're they're easy to sort out. So let's get ahead of it, maybe. Yeah. If I beat the throw and the fielder is already there, he said, and I'm sliding, there is nothing I can do except be out. My only option is to take the other guy out. That's all I have. I just don't understand how there isn't a rule there. So there might be some infielders who had a, a conflicting perspective sure. with the outfielder and runner, Andrew McCutcheon. But, you know, he said, I think about it all the time, especially now with my knees and my ankle. Other teams know that, too. You might have somebody who says, I know his ankle is bothering him, so I'm going to drop my leg in front of the base. If he slides, maybe I can get him out of the game. That could happen. Someone could be thinking that. Someone could have a vendetta or something. Who knows? History's greatest monster it would have to be to intentionally take out Andrew McCutcheon in that way. Or almost anyone, uh, knowing that they have something that, that hurts and trying to target that although I'm sure that that does happen. Hopefully not to Andrew McCutcheon. But I guess on the home plate collisions, maybe it's even more imperative because A, the the stakes involved with a run scoring or not, but also you maybe have time to work up a, a fuller head of steam if you're running from first or from second and you're coming all the way around, right? And maybe you have more momentum once you finally barrel into home plate than you do when you're sliding into second, like there's not, I guess you you have time to reach your top speed. I, I just, I don't know whether the same force sure, would that's fair. apply there, I guess. 
Plus, catchers wear protective equipment that middle infielders don't. They could just park themselves at the plate with impunity, and runners could come in at greater ramming speed, posing less danger to the catchers, but maybe more to themselves. But, you know, it's always, uh, it's been dangerous out there for, for the pivot men, too, yeah. for, for the second baseman. Like, historically speaking, they have not aged so well relative to some other positions right. uh, aside from catcher. And, and a theory on that is that it's because of, like, double plays and everything. And, and there have been some rules changes on, on that, too. But McCutcheon advocating for another one here. So, for all we know, future pass blasters will look back at 2023 as the year when they change this rule about sliding. Yeah. Ben back here just wanted to add that the changes to pivots and slide rules that I referenced a second ago, that was in 2016. MLB mandated that slides on potential double plays will require runners to make a bona fide attempt to reach and remain on the base. So runners were newly prohibited from altering their route to the base just to initiate contact with a fielder. That was reviewable and was prompted by a couple of controversial slides late in the previous season. It was also, I suppose, important to add that because replay review at the same time expanded to include the neighborhood play. So you couldn't just faint at second base on a pivot anymore. You could be caught doing that now. And so if you weren't going to give the pivot people that chance to dance out of the way, then you also had to make it tougher for runners to try to take them out. So one rules change maybe begets another. And maybe that will happen again after this season. All right, well, here's a roundup of the results of those pitchers who returned to action on Monday. Liam Hendricks pitched the eighth inning for the White Sox. He gave up a couple runs, but he got a a great reception. And in that A's-Braves game, Paul Blackburn gave up one run over four innings. Michael Soroka gave up four runs over six innings. And the little old A's beat the Braves seven to two. What did I tell you? All they needed was getting Paul Blackburn back. Also, here's a follow-up for you from episode 1996. You may recall I advocated for greater prevalence of exit speeds being displayed on baseball broadcasts. Pitch velocities are ubiquitous. You see them on every single pitch. And I thought, hey, it might be information overload for some, but I'd kind of like to see exit speeds on batted balls because every now and then there's a situation where I see a ball off the bat and I think, how hard was that hit? Is that going to get out? There's only a few seconds of suspense, but if I saw that number and I saw that it was hit hard enough and seemed to be hit at the right trajectory, then I might have greater confidence that yeah, that ball's gone. Well, here's something I heard on the Angels broadcast on Saturday. This is talking about the home run that Brandon Drury hit the game before. It was opposite field. It was his first home run in 16 games. I asked him, did you know you got it? Because it carried well to right field. He, he said at first, no. And then he looked at the video board and he saw the exit velo of 105. And he said, oh, yeah, I got it. How about that? In real time, running down the line with the ball in the air, he caught the exit velo. Yeah, most hitters realize that when the exit velocity plus the launch angle right. it should mean a home run. And that's exactly what it was for Brandon Drury. So they showed footage of Drury breaking out of the box, and you could see his eyes drift over to some display board and take in the exit speed. So I'm just saying, if even a hitter consults the exit speed in the seconds after he hits a ball to see if it's going to get out, well, as an audience, we have a lot less information than the hitter does. I think it would be useful to see sometimes in an unobtrusive way, just there if you want it. Maybe Brandon Drury would agree. And finally, no spoilers for the succession heads out there, but some of you saw a viral TikTok 
talk in the days leading up to the finale that predicted how the series would end based on a purported baseball connection to one of the characters, Tom Wamsgans. According to this video, which was everywhere, supposedly Tom Wamsgans was named after Bill Wamsgans, the baseball player for Cleveland a century or so ago who recorded an unassisted triple play in the World Series, the only one of its kind. And so, according to this theory, that name connection was a prediction about the end of the series. And this alleged connection had been mentioned a couple of years earlier, but it caught everyone's eye this time with all the interest in the series finale. And I always thought it was sort of suspect because the names are spelled differently. Wamsgams had two S's at the end. Wamsgams just has one. And also, most of the makers of Succession are British. Are they going to know a baseball player from a century ago and make that obscure reference to the 1920 World Series? And the answer is no, they were not, and they did not. So Stefan Fatsis of Slate and the Hang Up and Listen podcast actually reached out to a succession executive producer who said that, no, there was nothing to that. When they picked that name, they had no idea where their story was going to go. The name was just the name of a relative of a succession staff member. So there was no substance to this rumor. It did do wonders for Bill Wamsgam's awareness. It was kind of fun to think that there might be an obscure baseball connection in succession, which, of course, is a baseball show and was one as of the very first episode, when there was what, in retrospect, was a pretty strange baseball scene that Sam Miller recently wrote about. Anyway, you can't trust everything you hear on TikTok about baseball connections in prestige TV shows. However, you can trust Effectively Wild to keep cranking out podcasts, and we do that with assistance from our listeners who support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash effectivelywild. You too can go to that site and sign up to pledge some monthly or yearly amount to help keep us going, help us stay almost ad-free aside from our Stat Blast sponsorship, and get yourself access to some perks, as have the following five listeners and supporters. Justin Lazaruk, William Tollefson, John Kalicious, Nick Tabor, and David Batchelder. Thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to the Effectively Wild Discord group, as well as monthly bonus episodes, one of which we just published this past weekend. Among other things, we drafted our favorite franchises in fiction, which was fun. You get access to playoff live streams later in the year, too, plus discounts on merch and ad-free Fangraphs memberships, and oh, so much more. Patreon.com slash Effectively Wild. If you are a patron, you can message us through the Patreon site. You can also contact us via email at podcast at fangraphs.com. If you're interested in recording an Effectively Wild podcast theme song, you can still send those to podcast at fangraphs.com too. We have a regular rotation now and we will work yours in. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod and you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Shane McKeon for his editing and production assistance. We will be back with another episode later this week. Talk to you then. Number one fan grass baseball podcast. It's that cast, it's that blast. TOPS Plus when the stats need contrast. Zips and steamer for the forecast. Coming in high, big boss on a hovercraft. No notes, minor league free agent draft. Burn the ships, flames jumping for a nav. Cow FEMA. Boning on the bat shaft, makers on the butt feet, never say your hot seat. Games are always better with the pivot table spreadsheet. No ads, subscribers will support us. Room, room fast on your slog to rigor mortis.